0: Section 4 of Rewards and Fairies by Rudyard Kipling. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Rewards and Fairies by Rudyard Kipling. Section 4 the wrong thing. A Truthful Song The Bricklayer I tell this tale, which is strictly true, just by way of convincing you how very little since things were made things have altered in the building trade. A year ago, come the middle of March, we was building flats near the marble arch, when a thin young man with coal-black hair came up to watch us working there. Now there wasn't a trick in brick or stone that this young man hadn't seen or known. Nor there wasn't a tool from trowel to maul, but this young man could use em all. Then up and spoke the plumber's bold, which was laying the pipes for the hot and cold, Since you with us have made so free, Will you kindly say what your name might be?' The young man kindly answered them, "'It might be Lot or Methuselah, or it might be Moses, a man I hate, whereas it is Pharaoh surnamed the Great. Your glazing is new, and your plumbing strange, but otherwise I perceive no change, and in less than a month, if you do as I bid, I'll learn you to build me a pyramid.' the sailor. I tell this tale which is stricter true, just by way of convincing you how very little, since things were made, things have altered in the shipwrights trade. In Blackwall Basin yesterday a china-bark refitting lay, when a fat old man, with snow-white hair, came up to watch us working there. Now there wasn't a knot which the riggers knew, but the old man made it, and better, too. Nor there wasn't a sheet, or lift, or brace, but the old man knew its lead in place. Then up and spake the cockier's bold, which was packing the pump in the after-hold. Since you with us have made so free, will you kindly tell what your name might be? The old man kindly answered them, It might be Jaffet, it might be Shem, or it might be Ham, though his skin was dark whereas it is Noah commanding the ark. Your wheel is new, and your pumps are strange, but otherwise I perceive no change, and in less than a week, if she did not ground, I'd sail this hooker the wide world round. The WRONG THING Dan had gone in for building model boats but after he had filled the schoolroom with chips, which he expected Una to clear away, they turned him out of doors, and he took all his tools up the hill to Mr. Springett's yard, where he knew he could make as much mess as he chose. Old Mr. Springett was a builder, contractor, and sanitary engineer, and his yard, which opened off the village street, was always full of interesting things. At one end of it was a long loft reached by a ladder, where he kept his iron-bound scaffold planks, tins of paints, pulleys, and odds and ends he found in old houses. He would sit here by the hour, watching his carts as they loaded or unloaded in the yard below, while Dan gouged and grunted at the carpenter's bench near the loft window. Mr. Springett and Dan had always been particular friends, for Mr. Springett was so old he could remember when railways were being made in the southern counties of England, and people were allowed to drive dogs in carts. One hot, still afternoon, the tar-paper on the roof smelt like ships. Dan, in his shirt-sleeves, was smoothing down a new schooner's bow, and Mr. Springett was talking of barns and houses he had built. He said he never forgot any stick or stone he had ever handled, or any man, woman, or child he had ever met. Just then he was very proud of the village hall at the entrance of the village, which he had finished a few weeks before. "'And I don't mind telling you, Mr. Dan,' he said, "'that the hall will be my last job, top of this mortal earth. Oh, I didn't make ten pounds, no, nor yet five, out of the whole contract, but my name's lettered on the foundation stone. Ralph Springett, Builder.' and the stone she's bedded on four foot good concrete. If she shifts any time these five hundred years, I'll surely turn in my grave. I told the London architect so when he came down to oversee my work." What did he say? Dan was sandpapering the schooner's port bow. Nothing. The hall ain't more than one of his small jobs for him, but tain't small to me, and my name is cut and lettered frontin' the village street, all I do hope and pray, for time everlasting. You'll want the little round file for that holler in her bow." "'Who's there?' Mr. Springett turned stiffly in his chair. A long pile of scaffold-planks ran down the centre of the loft. Dan looked and saw Hal of the Draft's tousled head beyond them. See Hal of the Draft and Puck of Pook's Hill. "'Be you the builder of the village hall?' he asked of Mr. Springett. "'I be,' was the answer. "'But if you want a job,' Hal laughed. "'No faith,' he said. Only the Hall is as good and honest a piece of work as I've ever run a rule over. So being born hereabouts, and being reckoned a master among masons, and accepted as a master mason, I made bold to pay my brotherly respects to the Builder.' I am. Um, Mr. Springett looked important. Oh, I be a bit rusty, but I'll try ye." He asked Hal several curious questions, and the answers must have pleased him, for he invited Hal to sit down. Hal moved up, always keeping behind the pile of planks so that only his head showed, and sat down on a trestle in the dark corner at the back of Mr. Springett's desk. He took no notice of Dan, but talked at once to Mr. Springett about bricks and cement and lead and glass and after a while Dan went on with his work. He knew Mr. Springett was pleased, because he tugged his white sandy beard and smoked his pipe in short puffs. The two men seemed to agree about everything. But, when grown-ups agree, they interrupt each other almost as much as if they were quarrelling. Hal said something about workmen. "'Why, that's what I always say!' Mr. Springett cried. A man who can do only one thing He's but next above fool to the man that can't do nothing. That's where the Unions made their mistake. My thought to the very dot. Dan heard Hal slap his tight-hosed leg. I've suffered in my time from those same guilds. Unions, do you call em. All their precious talk of the mysteries of their trades. Why, what does it come to? Nothin! You just about hit it," said Mr. Springett and rammed his hot tobacco with his thumb. Take the art of wood-carving, Hal went on. He reached across the planks, grabbed a wooden mallet, and moved his other hand as though he wanted something. Mr. Springett, without a word, passed him one of Dan's broad chisels. Ah! Wood-carving, for example. If you can cut wood and have a fair draught of what you mean to do, a Heaven's name, take chisel and maul and let drive at it, say I. You'll soon find all the mystery, forsooth, of wood-carving under your proper hand." Whack, came the mallet on the chisel, and a sliver of wood curled up in front of it. Mr. Springett watched like an old raven. "'All art is one, man, one!' said Hal, between whacks. And to wait on another man to finish out? To finish out your work ain't no sense,' Mr. Springett cut in. "'That's what I'm always saying to the boy here.' He nodded towards Dan. "'That's what I said when I put the new wheel into Brewster's Mill in eighteen hundred seventy-two. I reckoned I was millwright enough for the job thout bringing a man from London. And besides, divided work eats up profits no bounds.' Hal laughed his beautiful deep laugh, and Mr. Springett joined in till Dan laughed too. "'You handle your tools, I can see,' said Mr. Springett. "'I reckon. If you're anyway like me, you've found yourself hindered by those— Guilds, did you call them? Unions, we say.' "'You may say so.' Hal pointed to a white scar on his cheekbone. "'This is a remembrance from the master-watching foreman of masons on Magdalen Tower, because, please you, I dared to carve stone without their leave. They said a stone had slipped from the cornice by accident.' "'I know them accidents.' There's no way to disprove him. And stones ain't the only things that slip," Mr. Springett grunted. Hal went on. "'I've seen a scaffold-plank keckle, and shoot at two clever workmen thirty foot onto the cold chancel floor below, and a rope can break—' "'Yes, natural is nature, and lime will fly up in a man's eyes without any breath of wind sometimes,' said Mr. Springett. "'But who's to show twasn't an accident?' "'Who do these things?' Dan asked, and straightened his back at the bench as he turned the schooner end for end in the vice to get at her counter. "'Them which don't wish other men to work no better nor quicker than they do,' growled Mr. Springett. "'Don't pinch her so hard in the vice, Miss Dan. Put a piece of rag in the jaws, or you'll bruise her.' "'More than that,' he turned towards Hal, "'if a man has his private spite laid up against you.' The Unions give him his excuse for working it off." "'Well, I know it,' said Hal. "They never let you go, them spiteful ones, I knowed a plasterer in 1861, down to the Wells. He was a Frenchy, a bad enemy, he was. I had mine, too. He was an Italian, called Benedetto. I met him first at Oxford on Magdalen Tower, when I was learning my trade or trades, I should say. A bad enemy he was, as you say. But he came to be my singular good friend," said Hal, as he put down the mallet, and settled himself comfortably. "'What might his trade have been, plasterin?" Mr. Springett asked. "Plasterin of a sort. He worked in stucco—fresco, we call it—made pictures on plaster. Not but what he had a fine sweep of the hand in drawin." He'd take the long sides of a cloister, trowel on his stuff, and rolled out his great all-abroad pictures of saints and croppy topped trees, quick as a Webster unrolling cloth, almost. Oh, Benedetto could draw! But he was a little-minded man, professing to be full of secrets of colour or plaster, common tricks, all of them, and his one single talk was how Tom, Dick, or Harry had stole this or the secret art from him. "'Oh, I know that sort,' said Mr. Springett. "'There's no keeping peace on makin' peace with such, and they're mostly born and bone-idle.' "'True. Even his fellow countrymen laughed at his jealousy. We two came to loggerheads early on Magdalen Tower. I was a youngster then. Maybe I spoke my mind about his work.' "'You should never do that,' Mr. Springett shook his head. "'That's sort of laid up against you.' true enough this benedetto did most specially body of me the man lived to hate me but i always kept my eyes open on a plank or a scaffold i was mighty glad to be shut of him when he quarrelled with his guild foreman and went off news and air and paints under his arm but hal leaned forward if you hate a man or a man hates you i know you're everlasted running across him Mr. Springett interrupted. "'Excuse me, sir.' He leaned out of the window, and shouted to a carter who was loading a cart with bricks. "'Ain't you no more sense than to heap em up that way?' he said. "'Take and throw a hundred of em off. It's more than the team can compass. Throw em off, I tell you, and make another trip for what's left over.' "'Excuse me, sir. You was saying—' "'I was saying that before the end of the year I went to Bury.' to strengthen the leadwork in the Great Abbey East window there. Now that's just one of the things I've never done. But I mind there was a cheap excursion to Chichester in 1879, and I went and watched em lead in a wonderful fine window in Chichester Cathedral. I stayed watch until twas time for us to go back. To know as I had two drinks, perhaps, all that day." Hal smiled. "'At Bury, then, sure enough! I met my enemy, Bettadetto. He had painted a picture in plaster on the south wall of the refectory. A noble place for a noble thing. A picture of Jonah. Ah! Jonah and his whale! I never been as far as Berry. You've worked about a lot," said Mr. Springett, with his eyes on the carter below. No, not the whale. This was a picture of Jonah and the Pompion that withered. But all that Benedetto had shown was a peevish greybeard, huggled up in angle-edged drapery beneath the pompion on a wooden trellis. This last, being a dead thing, he'd drawn it as twere to the life. But fierce old Jonah, bared in the sun, angry even to death that his cold prophecy was disproven. Jonah, ashamed, and already hearing the children of Nineveh running to mock him, Ah, that was what Benedetto had not drawn. He had better have stuck to his wheel, then said, "Mr. Springett, he'd ha done no better with that." He draws the damp cloth off the picture and shows it to me. I was a craftsman too, d'ye "'Tis good, I said, but it goes no deeper than the plaster. What? He said in a whisper. Be thine own judge, Benedetto. I answered. Does it go deeper than the plaster?" He reeled against a piece of dry wall. "'No,' he says. And I know it. I could not hate thee more than I have done these five years. But if I live, I will try, Hal. I will try.' Then he goes away. I pitied him, but I had spoken truth. His picture went no deeper than the plaster. "'Ah!' said Mr. Springett, who had turned quite red. You was talkin' so fast I didn't understand what you was drivin' at. I've seen men—good workmen they was—tried to do more than they could do, and they couldn't compass it. They knowed it, and it nigh broke their hearts like. You was in your right of course, sir, to say what you thought of his work. But if you'll excuse me, was you in your duty?" "'I was wrong to say it,' Hal replied. God forgive me, I was young. He was workman enough himself to know where he had failed, but it all came evens in the long run. By the same token, did you ever hear of one Torgiano, Torsani we called him? I can't say I ever did. Was he a Frenchy like? No, a hectoring, hard-mouthed, long-sordid Italian builder, as vain as a peacock and strong as a bull. But mark you! a master-workman. More than that, he could get his best work out of the worst men." "'Which it's a gift. I had a foreman bricklayer like him once,' said Mr. Springett. "'He used to prod em in the back like with a pointing trowel. And they did wonders!' "'I've seen Arturasani lay a prentice down with one buffet, and raise him up with another, to make a mason of him. I worked under him at building a chapel in London a chapel and a tomb for the King.' "'I never knew kings went to chapel much,' said Mr. Spriggan. "'But I always hold with a man. Don't care who he be. Seen about his own grave before he dies. tis not the sort of thing to leave to your family after the wheels red. I reckon twas a fine vault. None finer in England. This Torrigiano had the contract for it, as you'd say.' He picked master craftsmen from all parts—England, France, Italy, the Low Countries. No odds to him so long as they knew their work, and he drove them like—like like pigs at Brightling Fair. He called us English all pigs. We suffered it because he was a master in his craft. If he misliked any work that a man had done, with his own great hands he'd rive it out and tear it down before us all. Ah, you pig! you English pig!' he'd scream in the dumb wretch's face. "'You answer me! You look at me! You think at me! Come out with me into the cloisters! I will teach you carving myself! I will gild you all over!' But when his passion had blown out, he'd slip his arm round the man's neck and impart knowledge worth gold. twould have done your heart good, Mr. Springit to see the two hundred of us masons, jewellers, carvers, gilders, ironworkers, and the rest, all toiling like cock-angels, and this mad Italian hornet fleeing one to next up and down the chapel. Done your heart good, it would!" "'I believe you,' said Mr. Springett. In 1854, I mind, the railway was being made into Hastings. There was two thousand navies on it, all young, all strong and I was one of them. Oh, deary me! Excuse me, sir, but was your enemy working with you? Benedetto? Be sure he was. He followed me like a lover. He painted pictures on the chapel's ceiling, slung from a chair. Torrigiano made us promise not to fight till the work should be finished. We were both master craftsmen, do you see, and he needed us. None the less I never went aloft to carve without testin' all my ropes and knots each morning. We were never far from each other. Benedetto had sharpened his knife on his sole while he waited for his plaster to dry. Wheat, wheat, wheat I'd hear it where I hung chippin' round a pillar head, and we'd nod to each other friendly like. Oh, he was a craftsman, was Benedetto, but his hate spoiled his eye and his hand. I mind the night I had finished the models for the bronze saints round the tomb. Torrigiano embraced me before all the chapel, and bade me to supper. I met Benedetto when I came out. He was slobbering in the porch. Like a mad dog! working himself up to it,' said Mr. Springett. "'Did he have it in at ye that night?' "'No, no. That night he kept his oath to Torrigiano. But I pitied him. "'Ah, uh, well, now I come to my own follies. I had never thought too little of myself, but after Torrasani had put his arm round my neck, I—' <laughs> I, <laughs> Hal broke into a laugh. "'I lay there was not much odds twixt me and a cock-sparrow in his pride.' Oh, "'I was pretty middling young once on a time,' said Mr. Springett. "'Then you know that a man can't drink and dice and dress fine, and—' Keep company above his station, but his work suffers for it, Mr. Springett. "'Oh, I never held much with dressin' up, but <laughs> you're right. The worst mistakes are ever made. They was made of a Monday morning,' Mr. Springett answered. "'We've all been one sort of fool or t'other. Mr. damn, Mr. Dan, take the smallest gouge, or you'll be splittin' her stem-works clean out. Can't you see the grain of the wood don't favour a chisel?' I'll spare you some of my follies. But there was a man called Brigandine. Bob Brigandine, clerk of the King's ships, a little smooth, bustling atomy, as clever as a woman to get work done for nothing, a wonderful smooth-tongued pleader. He made much of me, and asked me to draft him out a drawing, a piece of carved and gilt scroll-work for the bows of one of the King's ships. The Sovereign was her name. Was she a man of war? asked dan she was a warship and a woman called catherine of castile desired the king to give her the ship for a pleasure ship of her own i did not know at the time but she'd been at bob to get this scroll work done and fitted that the king might see it i made him the picture in an hour all of a heat after supper one great heaving play of dolphins and a neptune or so reining in webby-footed sea-horses an arian with his harp high atop of them it was twenty three foot long and maybe nine foot deep painted in gilt. it must a just about look fine said mr springett that's the curiosity of it twas bad rank bad in my conceit i must needs show it to torrigiano in the chapel he straddles his legs hunches his knife before him and whistles like a storm-cock through a sleet-shower. Benedetto was behind him. We were never far apart, I've told you. That is pig's work, says our master. Swine's work. You make any more such things, even after your fine court suppers, and you shall be sent away. Benedetto licks his lips like a cat. Is it so bad, then, master? he says. What a pity! Yes, says Torrigiano. Scarcely you could do things so bad. I will condescend to show. He talks to me then and there. No shouting, no swearing. It was too bad for that. But good, memorable counsel, bitten in slowly. Then he sets me to draft out a pair of iron gates, to take, as he said, the taste of my naughty dolphins out of my mouth." iron sweet-stuff, if you don't torture her, and hammered-work is all pure, truthful line, with a reason and a support for every curve and bar of it. A week at that settled my stomach handsomely, and the master let me put the work through the smithy, where I sweated out more of my foolish pride. "'Good stuff is good iron,' said Mr. Springett. "'Oh, I done a pair of lodge-gates once in eighteen hundred sixty three. Oh, I forgot to say Bob Brigandine whipped away my draft of the ship's scroll-work, and would not give it back to me to redraw. He said twould do well enough. Howsoever my lawful work kept me too busied to remember him. Body of me, but I worked that winter upon the gates and the bronzes for the tomb as I'd never worked before. I was leaner than a lath, but I lived, I lived then. Hal looked at Mr. Springett with his wise, crinkled-up eyes, and the old man smiled back. "'Ouch!' Dan cried. He had been hollowing out the schooner's afterdeck. The little gouge had slipped and gashed the ball of his left thumb, an ugly triangular tear. "'That came of not steadying your wrist,' said Hal calmly. "'Don't bleed over the wood. Do your work with your heart's blood, but no need to let it show.' He rose and peered into a corner of the loft. Mr. Springett had risen, too, and swept down a ball of cobwebs from a rafter. "'Clap that on,' was all he said. "'And put your handkerchief atop. Twill cake over in a minute. It don't hurt now, do it?' "'No,' said Dan indignantly. "'You know it has happened lots of times. I'll tie it up myself. Go on, sir.' "'And it'll happen hundreds of times more,' said Hal, with a friendly nod, as he sat down again. But he did not go on till Dan's hand was tied up properly. Then he said, "'One dark December day. Too dark to judge colour. We was all sittin' and talkin' round the fires in the chapel. You heard good talk there. When Bob Brigandine bustles in and— "'Hal, you're sent for!' he squeals." I was at Torrigiano's feet on a pile of putlocks, as I might be here, toasting a herring on my knife's point. T'was the one English thing our master liked, salt herring. I'm busy about my art, I calls. Art? says Bob. What's art compared to your scroll work for the Sovereign? Come! Be sure your sins will find you out, says Torrigiano. Go with him and see. As I followed Bob out, I was aware of Benedetto, like a black spot, when the eyes are tired slittering up behind me. Bob hurries through the streets in a raw fog, slips into a doorway, upstairs, along passages, and at last thrusts me into a little cold room vilely hung with Flemish tapestries, and no furnishing except a table, and my draft of the Sovereign's scroll-work. Here he leaves me. Presently comes in a dark, long-nosed man in a fur cap. "'Master Harry Daw?' said he. "'The same,' I says. Where a plague is Bob Brigandine gone?' His thin eyebrows surged up in a piece, and come down again in a stiff bar. "'He went to the King,' he says. "'All one! Where's your pleasure with me?' I says, shivering, for it was mortal cold he lays his hand flat on my draft master daw he says do you know the present price of gold leaf for all this wicked gilding of yours by that i guessed he was some cheese-paring clerk or other of the king's ships so i gave him the price i forget it now but it worked out to thirty pounds carved gilt and fitted in place thirty pounds he said as though i had pulled a tooth of him you talk as though thirty pounds was to be had for the asking none the less he says your draft's a fine piece of work i'd been looking at it ever since i came in and twas viler even than i judged it at first my eye and hand had been purified the past months d'ye see by my ironwork i could do it better now i said the more i studied my squabby neptunes the less i liked em and Arian was a pure flaming shame atop of the unbalanced dolphins. I doubt it will be fresh expense to draft it again, he says. Bob never paid me for the first draft. I lay he'll never pay me for the second. Twill cost the King nothing if I redraw it, I says. There's a woman wishes it to be done quickly, he says. We'll stick to your first drawing, Master Daw. But thirty pounds is thirty pounds you must make it less." And all the while the faults in my draft fair leaped out and hit me between the eyes. At any cost, I thinks to myself, I must get it back and redraft it. He grunts at me impatiently, and a splendid thought comes to me which shall save me. By the same token, it was quite honest. "'They ain't always,' says Mr. Springett. How did you get out of it?' "'By the truth.' I says to Master Fur-Cap, as I might to you here, I says. I'll tell you something, since you seem a knowledgeable man. Is the Sovereign to lie in Thames River all her days, or will she take the high seas?" Oh, he says quickly, the King keeps no cats that don't catch mice. She must sail the seas, Master Daw. She'll be hired to merchants for the trade. She'll be out in all shapes o' weathers. Does that make any odds? why then says i the first heavy sea she sticks her nose into'll claw off half that scrollwork and the next will finish it if she's meant for a pleasure ship give me my draft again and i'll porture you a pretty light piece of scrollwork good cheap if she's meant for the open sea pitch the draft into the fire she can never carry that weight on her bows he looks at me squintlings and plucks his underlip is this your honest, unswayed opinion?" he says. "'Body o' me, ask about,' I says. Any seaman could tell you tis true. I'm advising you against my own profit, but why I do so is my concern." "'Not altogether,' he says. "'It's some of mine. You've saved me thirty pounds, Master Daw, and you've given me good arguments to use against a woeful woman that wants my fine new ship for her own toy we'll not have any scroll work his face shined with pure joy then see that the thirty pounds you've saved on it are honestly paid the king i says and keep clear of women folk i gathered up my draft and crumpled it under my arm if that's all you'll need of me i'll be gone i says i'm pressed he turns him round and fumbles in a corner too pressed to be made a knight sir harry he says and comes at me smiling with three-quarters of a rusty sword i pledge you my mark i never guessed it was the king till that moment i kneeled and he tapped me on the shoulder rise up sir harry doll he says and in the same breath i'm pressed too and slips through the tapestries leaving me like a stuck calf it come over me, in a bitter wave like, that here was I, a master craftsman, who had worked no bounds, soul or body, to make the King's tomb and chapel a triumph and a glory for all time. And here, d'ye see, I was made knight, not for anything I'd slaved over, or given my heart and guts to, but expressly because I'd saved him thirty pounds and a tongue-lashing from Catherine of Castile, she that had asked for the ship that thought shriveled me with insides while I was folding away my draft. On the heels of it—maybe you'll see why—I began to grin to myself. I thought of the earnest simplicity of the man—the King, I should say—because I'd saved him the money. His smile as though he'd won half France. I thought of my own silly pride and foolish expectations that some day he'd honour me as a master craftsman. I thought of the broken-tipped sword he'd found behind the hangings, the dirt of the cold room, and his cold eye, wrapped up in his own concerns, scarcely resting on me. Then I remembered the solemn chapel roof and the bronzes about the stately tomb he'd lie in, and, do you see, the unreason of it all, the mad high humour of it all, took hold on me till I sat me down on a dark stairhead in a passage, and laughed till I could laugh no more. What else could I have done? I never heard his feet behind me. He always walked like a cat. But his arm slid round my neck, pulling me back where I sat, till my head lay on his chest, and his left hand held the knife plumb over my heart. Benedetto. Even so I laughed. The fit was beyond my holding. Laughed while he ground his teeth in my ear. He was stark crazed for the time. Laugh! He says, finished the laughter. I'll not cut ye short. Tell me now." He wrenched at my head. Why the king chose to honour you, you, you lickspittle Englishman! I am full of patience now. I have waited so long. Then he was off at score about his Jonah in Berry Refectory and what I'd said of it, and his pictures in the chapel which all men praised and none looked at twice as if that were my fault, and a whole parcel of words and looks treasured up against me through years. "'Ease off your arm a little,' I said. "'I cannot die by choking, for I am just dubbed Knight, Benedetto.' "'Tell me, and I'll confess ye,' said Harry Daw, knight. There's a long night before ye. Tell,' says he." So I told him. His chin on my crown. Told him all told it as well and with as many words as I have ever told a tale at a supper with Torrigiano. I knew Benedetto would understand for mad or sad. He was a craftsman. I believed it to be the last tale I'd ever tell top of mortal earth, and I would not put out bad work before I left the lodge. All arts, one art, as I said. I bore Benedetto no malice. My spirits, do you see? were catched up in a high, solemn exaltation, and I saw all earth's vanities, foreshortened and little, laid out below me like a town from a cathedral scaffolding. I told him what befell, and what I thought of it. I gave him the King's very voice at, "'Master Daw, you save me thirty pounds!' his peevish grunt while he looked for the sword, and how the badger-eyed figures of glory and victory leered at me from the Flemish hangings body of me t'was a fine, noble tale, and, as I thought, my last work on earth. That is how I was honoured by the King," I said. "'They'll hang ye for killing me, Benedetto. And since you've killed in the King's palace, they'll draw and quarter ye. But you're too mad to care. Grant me, though, ye never heard a better tale." He said nothing, but I felt him shake. My head on his chest shook. His right arm fell away, his left dropped the knife, and he leaned with both hands on my shoulder, shaking, shaking. I turned me round. No need to put my foot on his knife. The man was speechless with laughter. Honest craftsman's mirth! The first time I'd ever seen him laugh. You know the mirth that cuts off the very breath while you stamp and snatch at the short ribs? That was Benedetto's case when he began to roar and bay and whoop in the passage, I hailed him out into the street, and there we leaned against the wall and had it all over again, waving our hands and wagging our heads, till the watch came to know if we were drunk. Benedetto says to him, solemn as an owl, "'You have saved me thirty pounds, Mr. Doll." and off he pealed. In some sort we were mad drunk I, because dear life had been given back to me and he because as he said afterwards because the old crust of hatred round his heart was broke up and carried away by laughter his very face had changed too hal he cries i forgive thee forgive me too hal oh you english you english did it gall thee hal to see the rust on the dirty sword tell me again hal how the king grunted with joy oh let us tell the master so we reeled back to the chapel, arms round each other's necks, and when we could speak, he thought we'd been fighting, we told the master. Yes, we told Torrigiano, and he laughed till he rolled on the new cold pavement. Then he knocked our heads together. Ah, you English! he cried. You are more than pigs! You are English! Now you are well punished for your dirty fishes! Put the draught in the fire, and never do so any more. You are a fool, Hal, and you were a fool, Benedetto, but I need your works to please this beautiful English king. And I meant to kill Hal, said Benedetto. Master, I meant to kill him because the English king had made him a knight. Ah, says the master, shaking his finger, Benedetto, if you had killed my Hal, I should have killed you in the cloister. But you are a craftsman, too, so I should have killed you like a craftsman. Very, very slowly. In an hour, if I could spare the time! <laughs> that was Torrigiano, the master. Mr. Springett sat quite still for some time after Hal had finished. Then he turned dark red. Then he rocked to and fro. Then he coughed and wheezed till the tears ran down his face. Dan knew by this that he was laughing, but it surprised Hal at first. Excuse me, sir, <laughs> <laughs> said Mr Springett, but I was thinking of some stables I built for a gentleman in eighteen hundred seventy four. They was stables in blue brick. Very particular work. Dunno as they weren't the best job which ever I'd done. But the gentleman's lady She'd come from London, new-married. She was all for building what was called a ha-ha, what you and me'd call a dick, right across this park. A middling big job which I'd have had the contract of, for she spoke to me in the library about it. But I told her there was a line of springs just where she wanted to dig her ditch, and she'd flood the park if she went on. "'Were there any springs at all?' said Hal bound to be springs everywhere, if you dig deep enough, ain't there?' But what I said about the springs put her out of conceit of digging haw-haws, and she took and built a white-tiled terry instead. But when I sent in my last bill for the stables, the gentleman he paid it without even looking at it, and I hadn't forgotten nothing, I do assure you. More than that, he slips two five-pound notes into my hand in the library, and, Ralph, he says, he always called me by name. "'Ralph,' he says, "'you saved me a heap of expense and trouble this autumn.' I didn't say nothing, of course. I knowed he didn't want any haw-haws digged across his park no more'n I did, but I never said nothing. No more he didn't say nothing about my blue-brick stables, which was really the best and honestest piece of work I'd done in quite a while. He gave me ten pounds for saving him a hem of a deal of trouble at home. I reckon things are pretty much alike at times in all places." Hal and he laughed together. Dan couldn't quite understand what they thought so funny, and went on with his work for some time without speaking. When he looked up, Mr. Springett, alone, was wiping his eyes with his green-and-yellow pocket-handkerchief. "'Bless me, Mr. Dan, I've been asleep,' he said, "'and I've dreamed a dream which has made me laugh. <laughs> laugh as I ain't laughed in a long day.' I can't remember what it was all about. But they do say that when old men take to laughin' in their sleep, they're middlin' ripe right for the next world. Have you been working, Honest, Mr. Dan?" "'Rather,' said Dan, unclamping the schooner from the vise, "'and look how I've cut myself with a small gouge!' "'Yes. You want a lump of cobwebs to that,' said Mr. Springett. "'Oh, I see you put it on already.' "'That's right, Mr. Dan.' King Henry the Seventh and the Shipwrights. Harry, our king in England, from London town is gone, and come unto Harnell on the Hoke in the county of Southampton, for there lay the Mary of the Tower, his ship of war so strong, and he would discover certainly if his shipwrights did him wrong. He told not none of his setting forth, nor yet where he would go, but only my lord of Arundel and meanly did he show, in an old jerkin' and patched hose that no man might him mark. With his frieze hood and cloak about, he looked like any clerk. He was at Hamel on the hoke about the hour of the tide, and saw the merry hailed into dock, the winter to abide, with all her tackle and habiliments which are the king his own, but then ran on his false shipwrights, and stripped her to the bone. They heaved the mainmast overboard, that was of a trusty tree, and they wrote down it was spent and lost, by force of weather, at sea. But they saw in it to planks and strakes as far as it might go, to makin' beds for their own wives, and little children also. There was a knave called Slingaway. He croaked beneath the deck, crying, Good fellows, come and see! The ship is nigh a wreck! For the storm that took our tall mainmast, it blew so fierce and fell, alack! it hath taken the kettles and pans, and this brass pot as well. With that he set the pot on his head, and hied him up the hatch, while all the shipwrights ran below to find what they might snatch. All except Bob Brigandine, and he was a yeoman good, he caught Slingaway round the waist, and threw him on to the mud. I have taken plank and rope and nail, without the king his leave, after the custom of portsmouth. But I will not suffer, a thief. Nay, never lift up thy hand at me. There's no clean hands in the trade. Steal in measure, quoth Brigandine, there's measure in all things made. Gramercy, yeoman, said our king, thy counsel liketh me. And he pulled a whistle out of his neck, and whistled whistles three. Then came my lord of Arundel, pricking across the down, and behind him the mayor and burgesses of merry Southampton town. They drew the naughty shipwrights up with the kettles in their hands, and bound them round the forecastle to wait the king's commands. But since ye made your beds, said the king, ye needs must lie thereon. For the sake of your wives and little ones, fellows get ye gone." When they had beaten Slingaway, out of his own lips our King appointed Brigandine to be clerk of all his ships. Nay, never lift up thy hands to me. There's no clean hands in the trade. But steel in measure, said Harry our King, there's measure in all things made. God speed the Mary of the Tower, the Sovereign, and Grace you, The Sweepstakes, and the Merry Fortune, and the Henry of Bristol, too! all tall ships that sail on the sea or in our harbours stand that they might keep measure with harry our king and peace in england end of part 4